Well, as I mentioned, we normally would look in a gospel account. The, the events in the Easter season are familiar to us. We, we know what's coming. There aren't any surprises. It's Palm Sunday. You expected to hear about the triumphal entry, and we're going to consider that. You expected probably some palm trees, extra palm trees, thanks to those who put those in here. Uh, it's, it, 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 we have certain expectations because there's a rhythm and a routine things that are normal for us. And on Palm Sunday, we consider the fact that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. It was the mark of the beginning of the week of his passion. And after entry into Jerusalem, where they celebrated him as the coming king, they soon turned on him. And after the Passover, there was then a trial, a crucifixion, and the death, but ultimately the resurrection, which is why we look so forward to next Sunday when we mark that on Easter. And so today we're looking at this psalm, Psalm 118. The psalms contain songs and prayers. Uh, They're expressed in praise. There's lament in the psalms. There, of course, are questions in the psalms. Questions where the, the writer struggles with why things are the way that they are. They are rich in history. They are rich in counsel. They speak to us and tell us how we are to live And there is also prophecy in the Psalms. A number of the Psalms are known as Messianic Psalms. These are Psalms that were written in the historical context of that day. But there were prophetic foreshadowings or foretellings of what would come, specifically of the promised Redeemer who would come to save the people of God. Another category of Psalms, much smaller, are known as the Hallel Psalms from the word Hallelujah. Songs of hallelujah is what they mean. And these Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 to 118. So we're looking at the last of these Hallel Psalms today. These were sung during festivals uh, throughout the year and and at times of celebration in the life of the worship uh, of the people of Israel. And in particular, the Hallel Psalms were sung at Passover. The uh, first two were sung before the meal began. And the last four came after the last cup was poured. They were sung or recited uh, in in and among the, the, the setting of worship. This particular psalm, Psalm 118, is, many believe, the hymn that was sung by Jesus and disciples when they left the first last supper, the first Lord's Supper, the last supper as we call it. When they left, Matthew uh, 26.30 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Many believe that this that we're looking at today is the hymn that they sung. So Psalm 118 is a Hallel psalm, but it's also a Messianic psalm. It is foretelling of the Messiah would come. And you probably noticed that when we read it this morning. You probably noticed those familiar phrases that speak of the Messiah. The stone that the builders rejected that uh, Zach read from in Matthew this morning. Uh, Jesus recites this psalm in that context in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. So he points to himself as fulfilling this particular psalm, Psalm 118. Peter includes it in his sermon before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 4. And then later he includes it in his first epistle, explaining that this is Jesus that's being spoken of in this psalm. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, pointing to the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone, the stone that was rejected. Another phrase that you probably recognize, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was what was sung out by the people 
This is what they, uh, it was foretold, you know, a thousand years before that this is what they would exclaim. This is what they would sing and say out during, during uh, Jesus' triumphal entry. And that's exactly what happened. That's the, 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 the event that we commemorate today on Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry of Jesus coming in, uh, in kingly fashion uh, into Jerusalem. As helpful as it is to know about the events that happened, it's important to know these things, the psalm does more than this. It does more than tell us what would happen or point to what would happen, but it tells us what it means for Jesus to be king. It's helpful to understand that his kingdom has come and that we who are trusting in him have been made citizens of his kingdom. It's in these verses that we discover what it looks like to trust Jesus as our king, to know that he is sovereign. It informs us how we are to live our lives, to call out to him when we, we are in distress, as the psalmist did. In all the heartaches and the griefs that we face in life, and we know that there are many, this psalm gives us instruction on how we can look to God to see his power, his love, his salvation on display and look to Jesus alone as our king. And so beginning in verse 1, we see this phrase to uh, thank the Lord because his steadfast love endures forever. It's called an inclusio. It starts the psalm and it ends the psalm and it, it, it bookends the two. We saw this idea of inclusio from Hebrew writing. We've seen it in Jeremiah. If you remember all the way back to Genesis, we saw it. It was even in the book of Revelation, even though that was written in Greek, the Hebrew thought was still there. So you have this phrase that kind of sets up, it bookends the psalm to communicate that this is what it's about. The psalm, the first four verses, though, really serve as a call to worship. If you'll notice the way they read, they're addressed to different groups of people. And you can see how well this would work as a call to worship. Now, the setting of the psalm isn't known. There's no historical background information given. But there's a similar example of where songs and a call to worship and there was a, a throng or a procession uh, to the temple given in Second Chronicles 20 after a battle. And there's no reason to think that this wasn't written after some great victory uh, or a great victory in battle because it speaks of that. It uses the language of warfare. Um, now, some believe that this this became kind of a a pattern for worship among the people of Israel. It almost served as an annual Thanksgiving service, that they would at least once a year follow this pattern of worship to celebrate and thank the Lord for how he had delivered them. But whatever the background is, even though we can't be certain of that, the psalm does show us who God is, and that is what's most important. It puts on display for us his love, power, and salvation at work among his people. And that means that this psalm speaks to us in our own day. It was written a long time ago, but it still speaks to us in the battles that we face. We may not enter into actual warfare. We may not fight in a military skirmish, but we all know what it means to battle. We have battles against sin and temptation. We face battles against defeat and hopelessness. We fight for faith. We fight to overcome fear or not to be controlled by fear. We battle to live unto Christ according to his commands. We battle against our past, trying to make sense of what we have done or what has been done to us, to try and overcome that. We, we battle against the questions that we face in life, trying to make sense of why life is the way that it is. Why does the Lord let these things happen? These are all struggles that we face. And while worship doesn't make these things go away, 
Worship doesn't give us answers to all of our questions. We still leave here with questions sometimes. Lord, why? I don't understand. What worship does, though, is reorient us to see who is the king, to see who he is, what his character is, and what that means for us, to know that he is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. That's why we gather That's why the Lord gives us the gift of worship. We come to worship Him, but He gives back to us in this a reorienting of our minds and our hearts. As I mentioned, the first four verses serve as a call to worship. It's addressed to all the people. It's a way of saying both personally and corporately that God is good and His love knows no end. No matter what you're facing, what questions you're asking, He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is good and loving. And when we do this, when we say these things together, when we sing these songs together, it's not only worship to God, but it's a benefit to us. It means that when I am struggling and my faith is weak and feeble, that even as I recite words and sing words, I'm hearing you do the same. And we need to do that. We need to hear one another. That's one of the benefits of corporate worship, is that as I struggle to say words at times that that are difficult for me, that I hear you next to me saying or singing those words. Corporate worship is vital in our lives to strengthen our faith. Let us not forsake the gathering together. The call then is addressed to the entire assembly. You notice three different groups. The first is Israel. This is the nation that God had set apart for himself through which he gave his law, his prophets, and ultimately his Messiah. Next, he addresses the priests or the house of Aaron as they're mentioned here, those who serve the Lord in the temple and led in the acts of worship. And then finally is this group described as those who fear the Lord, which would certainly include the first two groups, but it's a broader phrase to include those who were not a part of the nation of Israel, but who feared the God of Israel. God-fearers were Gentiles who trusted in the God of Israel. They came and they joined in, and they are here called into worship along with the nation of Israel. This is, is a type of foreshadowing of what would come in the gospel that the gospel would go to all the nations. It, would not, it was never about one nation. It was about reaching to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus came, it opened that up wide. So all the people here are called to give thanks to God because his love never ends but endures forever. In the next section, verses 5 to 18, this is the bulk of it. This is kind of the, the, the meat of the message. It speaks, the psalmist speaks of the actual deliverance on a personal level using this battle imagery of having fought likely in an actual or military skirmish. Even though we don't know for sure the background of this, if David was the writer, then he was certainly familiar with such things. Yet the application endures, and it has spoken to the people of God throughout the ages ever since, no matter what the situation. The author begins with an experience that we all understand. Look in verse 5. I was in distress. Something every one of us knows. We know this from the time that we're born. Babies come into this world usually indicating that they are in distress because they were quite happy in mama's womb and now they're out here in this awful world. They're usually hungry or something else is wrong. But babies, when they need something, they can't solve it themselves. They let us know, don't they? If they're hurt, they express that distress. As as babies grow into children, and maybe you have a a memory of this, 
when a child is lost, that's an experience of distress. And if you ever knew that, you, you know what it is, that fear of, I have no idea what to do, somebody help me. And it doesn't, it doesn't go away as we enter in adult years. We face all kinds of distresses, great and small. And some of you have known very grievous distresses. Whatever the affliction, we can all relate to this. And it is in such situations that the psalmist tells us what we are to do. He says, I called to the Lord. He testifies that the Lord answered his call and set him free, that the Lord is on his side. So he says, I will not be afraid. And then he he kind of captures this with this rhetorical question, what can man do to me? It's designed to drive the point home. It's a way of saying, if I'm trusting the king of the universe, the one who is sovereign over all things, then why should I fear anything that is under his sovereign rule? It is better, he says, to trust in God than to trust in man. It's better to trust in God over princes. From the lowest to the highest, there's no person that we can trust completely. Why? Because we're all human and we let each other down. None of us can can save each other. None of us can help each other perfectly. And so he says, don't look to man. Don't, Don't even look to princes, the people who you want to put your hope in, who seem to have the power, who seem to have the answers. But instead, take refuge in the Lord and find true safety. The psalmist then describes the distress he was under, and you can imagine what it looked like in battle. Attacks from all around, like swarming bees being pushed to the point of falling in verses 10 to 13. But he trusts in the name of the Lord. He says, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. This is pointing to the character of God. It's a way of ascribing the, the, the glory for the deliverance to God. It's not that the name of the Lord is a magic spell. The name of the Lord, be it Jehovah, be it Yahweh, be it Jesus, is not to be used as something that we say and expect to get our wishes. I mean, if that were the case, then every person who came to me and said, I have cancer, I would say, in the name of Jesus, you don't have cancer, if that's the way that it worked. So what does this mean then? What is this describing? To say or proclaim that we do anything in the name of Jesus is to say that we are doing things in faith, that we are trusting Jesus because he alone has the power to overcome this. We do it in faith and we do it according to his word. In other words, when we do anything in the name of Jesus, we do it trusting him, we do it in the way that he has told us, and we do it the, in the, with the attitude that he has prescribed. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By saying in the name of the Lord, the psalmist here ascribes credit to the one who delivered him. In the name of the Lord, it is by the character of God that he sees his deliverance. In the next section, we read that the Lord is, is described here as a song, uh, as well as the people, are, their hearts are filled with songs. This uh, is a reference back to the deliverance in, at the Red Sea when Moses afterwards wrote the Song of Moses that's recorded in Exodus. And the psalmist here quotes from it directly. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This was Moses' word. These were Moses' words. The song that he sang. And of course, Moses is ascribing the source of his strength, the name of the Lord. And the fact that he is also his song, that he has put a song in his heart. He is both the source of his power and the source of his deliverance. And the same is true for the psalmist. 
And so as a result, the righteous now in the land sing, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly, the right hand of the Lord exalts, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. You can see even in the English how this works in a sing-song kind of nature that this very likely was put to music and sung. All glory belongs to God, for he alone is the one who saves. His right hand, that is his power, That's what his right hand always signifies in Scripture. When we see his right hand mentioned, it's pointing to his power, that his power is on display for all to see. There's no debating it. Last Sunday after we had our uh, meal, uh, we were out. The Bacchuses hung around and played some ball, and we went out, and there was this incredible sunset. I mean, we, we have a lot of really good sunsets here. And we just talked about the fact that, like, how can you look at this and not recognize the Creator? And, and the need to do that. Every night when I walk the dog, if the sky's clear, you know, I look up and I'm, I'm just like, wow, it never gets old, you know, to see his power on display. We see it in creation. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. His power is on display in the fact that he cares for everyone. Matthew 5.45, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And I think especially his power is on display in redemption. Psalm 111.9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And then in the final two verses, the psalmist speaks of his personal deliverance and the fatherly care of the Lord. Now it seems strange maybe to some of you that anyone would write a psalm of praise that would include discipline. <laughs> uh, that wouldn't be what first came to my mind if I was writing a psalm, but here that's what the psalmist expresses, gratefulness for God's discipline. It's only when we understand God as Father that we can appreciate his discipline. Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So the discipline of the Lord is done in love. Why? Because it saves us from destruction. It brings us back off the wrong path, puts us on the right path to flourish. It delivers us. That's what loving discipline does. In the same way as a parent, when we correct our child, we are turning them away from from harm and pointing them to good, helping them to walk in the way that is good for their good and pleases the Lord. And he says, all of this is for my good, that I might live so that I might recount the deeds of the Lord. He wants to keep on living, not for his own sake, but to be able to tell everyone what God has done. So after then, the, the bulk of the message comes this, this what is described as, by some as a liturgy in verses 19 to 29. And it's this liturgy, this procession that's coming up to the temple uh, to give praise to God. And the people join in with the worship leader in this procession. They're walking up to the gates. They enter through the gates of the righteous to give thanks to the Lord for his salvation. And it says here that the righteous may enter in. Who are the righteous? You know, when I was young and I would read passages like this, I would think, I'm never going to be righteous. How could I ever enter in? I didn't make the connection that it wasn't my righteousness, but all the way back to what was Abraham told, right? The righteous shall live by faith. And we see this over and over in Scripture. The righteous are those who live by faith. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In verse 22, we see now the messianic foreshadowing of the stone that was laid in Zion. This stone had been prophesied not only by the psalmist here in this particular psalm, but also by Isaiah. In Isaiah 28, 16, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. This stone of deliverance would not come through man's efforts. It wouldn't be Israel's doing. It wouldn't be any person's doing. But this would be the work of God alone. He is the one who brings the cornerstone. And we come to know that God himself put on flesh and is the cornerstone. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. No one could have imagined what God was up to, what he would actually do. They trusted him for deliverance, but how he would work it and how he would carry it out, how he would bring it to fruition was beyond imagination. This is a description of the work of the gospel. The incredible upside-down grace triumphs work wherein God delivers his people through the death of his son. Who would have written the script this way? None of us. We couldn't have imagined And yet this is what God has done, a demonstration of his power that seems foolish to us in human terms. It doesn't make sense. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why? Because it puts on display for the world to see the glory of his wisdom, of his love, and his goodness. Even though the coming king would be rejected, As this precious stone, God would still establish him. They couldn't reject him enough. They couldn't stop him. God would establish him as the king forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And because Jesus has come and has overcome death and sin, we can say with the psalmist, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. When we sang that song as children, did we really understand that the prophet was, or the psalmist was, was speaking prophetically of the true day of salvation, the day the Messiah would come? In verses 25 and following, we see this another prophetic thing that points to the coming of the Messiah, the very utterances that were made by the people as he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They cry out, Save us, we pray, O Lord, which in the Hebrew is Hosanna. It's the cry to, 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 to save us. And quite literally, in its, in its original use, it meant that. It was a call to God to save them. But over time, it kind of morphed into not just a, a call to God for salvation, but a proclamation that God is the Savior. So it kind of looked forward and looked backward. It looked backward to, to the fact that God had saved, and it looked forward to the fact that God would save. And so it's a proclamation in faith of the God who saves. <clears throat> Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another familiar phrase that we see on Palm Sunday in the gospel accounts. What was spoken prophetically in the psalm became reality on that first Palm Sunday. Did the people really know? Did, were they thinking of Psalm 118? I, I kind of doubt it. I think they were going along. They got caught up in the experience. Maybe some did. But I think a lot of it, as, as is evident by their turning in the days ahead, probably didn't understand what was actually happen, happening that day. Jesus came as this one who saves, the one they called out for, even though many of the people and certainly the religious leaders would, would reject him as the cornerstone in the coming days. 
Then in verse 27, the people praise God for his light that he has made to shine on them. This is a reference to the ironic blessing given in number 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. This was the blessing that God set over his people. And he says that he, the, the verse that follows in Numbers where that blessing is given, it, it describes that the blessing was given to mark the people of God that they would know and that all other people would know that they belong to the Lord, that the Lord is their God. It was a reminder to them and an announcement to others that this is the people of the Lord. And so here the psalmist recalls this, making your light to shine upon us. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to shine the light, to reveal the Father, but also to shine light in our hearts of eternity to deliver us from sin and death. And as a result, he has been lifted up. He has been magnified. Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he has come, and because he has made us his people, we now bear his name. We are Christians. We are those who follow Christ. And because of this, we are now blessed. See, other kings come demanding honor and blessing upon themselves. But Jesus came giving honor and blessing. He came humbly, riding on the colt of a donkey. His name is above every name. He deserved all honor and blessing. Yet he comes that we would be blessed. How? Through the fact that in the coming days, he would lay his life down. Willingly. That he would give of himself that our sins and the curse of sin might be removed. We are freed and in turn saved from the just wrath of God. Because why? Because the King has come. The King who came lowly and in humility to bring blessing and light and salvation shine upon us that we might be called the children of God. And so we are. And so we see the King has come just as he promised, just as the prophets foretold. But again, could anyone have imagined how it would have actually happened? Jesus came not for glory, not for honor, though it's all he deserved. He came to lay his life down according to the triune plan of God before the foundation of the world to save you and to save me. Jesus is this precious stone, the precious cornerstone laid in Zion, but rejected by the builders. And So this is how Peter describes how it actually happened. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
You see, the result of this stone who came and was laid is the fact that we are now being built as living stones upon this cornerstone. We have not only been joined to Christ, but we are joined together as His people, being built up, being raised up. It's first and foremost with Christ that we are joined. And I would say this at this point, if you've not come to the place where you're trusting in Christ, then this is the moment to recognize that, to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that He is the Savior. That's the call you need to hear today because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But we must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And so if you're desiring to seek God today, come to Him in faith. And as we come to Christ in faith, then we are not only joined to Him, but we're joined together with one another. Paul captures this as well in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see that language? Living stones being built up to become what? A temple for God to dwell in. Who could have imagined? This was the plan. I mean, they sat there at the temple in these acts of worship, marching up through the gates, carrying on. How could they have foreseen that God Himself would inhabit His people? How would that ever be possible? The table that is spread out before us today not only proclaims, but it demonstrates what we've just seen. That we are joined together with God. We come to commune with Him because we're trusting Him by faith, but we're also communing together as a people. This is why we do this corporately. We are fellow living stones being built up so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We hear proclaimed in this table, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And because the King has come, He now reigns forever and ever. There will be no end to His kingdom. And as a result, we are blessed by him. So now let us prepare our hearts to come to the table that we may express through the supper the goodness of our king that we can say in our hearts, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray.